Okay, if you turn to the book of Lamentations, uh, chapter 4. We've got the last two chapters of this short book, but powerful, powerful book. It's, uh, it's a really strange book. Again, it's, it's very heavy going. It's this kind of funeral dirge, and Jeremiah just pouring out his heart, seeing this city. But there's this message throughout of hope. Uh, and we see it through this chapter. But really, I mean, and what Peter just said a moment ago, what a great introduction. You know, just speaking about sin and how just sin just destroys. It breaks down. It ruins. It doesn't help us. It doesn't bless us. It doesn't benefit us in any way, shape, or form. Let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time and just commit this, this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Father, just teach us again, we pray now, Lord, that which you would have us know. Um, Father encourage us and edify us and build us up but a lot at the same time lord may we not turn away from the horrors of sin lord the reality that life without you without your laws without your rules lord is just unthinkable father your word speaks of the the horror of hell of the lake of fire and the real horror is because your presence will not be there lord just impress upon our hearts this morning Lord, whatever it is you have us would have us know. Lord, whether it be to convict us personally of things that need to change. Lord, whether it's to take this message to others. Lord, that through your spirit you would bring conviction to their lives. Father, may we grow in grace now. We just ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this chapter, this kind of fourth stanza, as it were, in this, this it's almost kind of a poem. I suppose it is... Uh, the way it's presented to us. You know, the first part of this, just we see the horrors of the siege uh, and so on. We'll, we'll go through this as we, we look at it. Um, let's jump straight into the first verse. So, And we see that word again, that how. You remember the, the book begins with how. It says here, how is the gold become dim? How is the most fine gold changed? And you know, the, the, the same Hebrew word, Eka uh, uh, is the word we have at the beginning. It's the, the Hebrew name for the book itself. Uh, of course, our, our name comes down from, from the Latin and from the, the, the Greek originally. And this idea of lamenting, lamentations. Um, and of course, we've already seen that word in the book in, in its English translation. Um, but the Hebrew title is simply just this one word, how. How has it come to this? Um, and really there's another echo of that theme as we come into this chapter because we're looking at the, the gold here. How has the gold become dim? You know, that which was once priceless, something that was so wonderful, something that people were in awe. You know, people came to see the temple that Solomon had built. That they, they were just overwhelmed by the gold that covered everything. And we're told that silver wasn't accounted as anything in the days of Solomon. There was so much silver, that was just common stuff. You know, and, and the gold, it was inestimable value. But now Jeremiah says, how has the gold become thin? You know, it's lost its shine, it's lost its appeal, it doesn't mean anything. You know, in the midst of calamity, material prosperity soon loses any value whatsoever. But this is a stage on from that, because this isn't just a, a situation where there's a uh, some calamity going on this is God's wrath and even more so now those natural things things of this world totally lose their value everything suddenly gets put in perspective here uh, you may be familiar 
uh, with a song written by a Christian singer-songwriter by the name of Larry Norman. Uh, the song's called, I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Uh, and the, the part of the verse goes, Life was filled with guns and war, and all of us got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. The children died, the days grew cold. A piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. It's speaking of that time of rapture, the time that's coming when the, the, the body of Christ, the church, will be taken out of this world and God will bring his judgment upon this unbelieving world. You know, and the opportunity for people who maybe are wavering, thinking about, well, should they follow Christ or not? Well, that, that, that time will have passed and it'll be too late and they'll be plunged into this time of tribulation. Uh, and it really will be the kind of, a situation that, you know, somebody that's got bread, well, they'll be the ones with the power because all those things that the world aspires to, material uh, prosperity, you know, gold and oil and all those kind of things, they won't mean anything. It'll all be gone. Suddenly survival will become the order of the day. And same situation in a sense here uh, for Jeremiah. Again, how is the gold become dim? And it says, how is the most fine gold changed? Now, again, I think this is interesting. Because this is, speaking of that which was beautiful to look upon, it's now corrupt. There's now no joy in even looking at these things. Something that once was, was seen as being a wonderful thing. In the context of this judgment that is coming upon Jerusalem, that fine gold has changed. It's lost its glory. You know, everything in this life if it has glory, it's only because of its connection to God. And when it's removed from its connection to God, it no longer has any glory. This gold was wonderful, not because of what it was, but because of where it was and where it was used. It was used in the temple that God had said he would put his name in. But now, the Shekinah glory has been removed. We read about that in the book of Ezekiel. And this place is just a hollow Remembrance of once what it was. Interestingly, it's as if God sees Israel this way at this point. Israel with this precious, wonderful gem, this jewel. But now they've been changed. Sin has changed them also. And this is what sin does. It, it, it just, it totally corrupts on every level. And you know, that which was Sacred was scattered abroad and trampled underfoot. We read that the stones of the sanctuary are poured out in the top of every street. Now, I'm not specifically sure what the reference here, here is to stones, whether it's the reference to the building itself, to the temple itself, which was obviously destroyed. I think that's probably the most um, plausible and, and consistent explanation. As the forces of Nebuchadnezzar are coming in and destroying the temple. Jeremiah remembers sitting at Golgotha, sitting at Calvary, watching all these events unfold, seeing Jerusalem burning. You know, and all these, these stones that have been hewn from these, these quarries, cut, made perfect, the right shape, the right size, before they even got to the Temple Mount. You know, that, so when they were placed in position... There was no hammer, there was no chisel, there was no sound of workmen on the Temple Mount. It was a strange project. All the, the chiseling, all the working was done down in the quarry. It's a great lesson for the way that God works 
in us and with us. Spurgeon has a lovely teaching on that. You know, that it's right now, down in the quarry, that God's doing that work in us. Those stones, we are living stones. being built up into that, that house for the Lord. You know, and all the work is being done right now in the quarry. So that when we are finally in that temple, in that place where the Lord would have us, when we're finally taken home, everything will fit together perfectly. That's how it was in the temple. But those stones, those very stones that have been hewn out of the quarries, that have been brought to the temple mound and laid in place, they're now scattered. Top of every street. And it says, precious sons of Zion, comparable to fine gold. How are they esteemed as earthen pitchers? The work of the hands of the potter. This is interesting because these are the people that the inhabitants of Jerusalem would have looked up to. The precious sons of Zion. You know, quite possibly speaking of the royalty. I mean, you look at, we, we looked briefly in the first week of this study at the sons of uh, King Josiah and, and how they all just, just walked away from God. Such a sad end to the, to the monarchy at this point. Yeah, maybe it's in reference to, to, to those sons. But the strong men, those that should have been taking the lead, those of the, the army, those that were able to fight, once something that Israel was proud of. It says that they're once that they were comparable to fine gold. That's that what they were like. They were so wonderful. Now, they just seem like pots. The work of the hands of a potter. Isn't that interesting, actually? Because... In actual fact, they are the work of the hands of a potter. It's God who is the one that is working with these earthen vessels, with us as clay. But you see, the nation and Jerusalem, the priests, the prophets had rejected God's word. Everything had changed. The glory had departed. It's like it was back in the days of Samuel when the ark was taken. You know, when the ark is taken, I'm sure you're aware, one of Eli's sons was married a woman and they give birth to a child the name Ichabod. It's a great name. So it's on the list. I'm not sure whether Joy will go for it. But the name means the glory has departed. So actually it's not such a good name, is it really? But that's what it means. It means the glory has departed because it's at that point that Eli finds out that the ark has been captured. What did the ark contain? It effectively contained the word of God, the law, God's word to his people. And when God's word is taken out, the glory departs. We sadly see it in churches all over this land. When God's word is taken out, when it's no longer esteemed to be something of ultimate value and worth, the glory departs. Of course, this is what's happened in Jerusalem. Yeah, and these individuals that should have been the people that others would look up to, they're not just esteemed as earthen pictures that they were of no real value so sad and then we read even the sea monsters draw out the breast they give suck to the young ones they say that even these these wild creatures and animals and creatures in the sea they know how to look after their young they're saying Israel you've forgotten how to look after the little ones. This is again this, this expression, the daughter of my people. We've seen this a number of times, 18 times it uh, occurs in Lamentations. God seeing Israel as a daughter. This is heartbreaking 
as he's seeing all this happening. God is just. He has to bring this judgment, but he doesn't enjoy it. The daughter of my people is become cruel. We're told, like the ostriches in the wilderness, they've, they've kind of forgotten their sense of responsibility. They've forgotten their responsibility to their children. As this comparison, that, that even the wild animals know how to look after their young. Why is it that humans seem to forget the responsibility we have to young people, to our children? It's crazy. There's all sorts of things every week we see in the media. But there's an article this week. You may, you may have seen River Island have um, put an advert out. It went out, was aired about four o'clock. And I didn't see the advert, but I read the review, the comments afterwards. But apparently it was very um, provocative. Uh, and it showed these two girls that end up embracing and kissing each other. Uh, and the whole basis behind this clothing campaign uh, was that it was gender neutral. Yet we've forgotten how to look after our children. You know, people forget the impact that these things have. You know, yet again this week, I can't remember which celebrity it was now, but I was reading uh, uh, an article I saw that another famous celebrity is just ending their marriage after just two years. You know, and you think how many children, are, their lives are torn apart because... Parents no longer view marriage as anything special. Marriage is just purely a convenience thing for people for as long as they want it. They don't see it as being this bedrock that a family's built upon. This safe environment for children. Well, we're no different to, to the way things were in Jerusalem. And I mean, we should take notice because if God brings judgment on Jerusalem for these things... Do we think he won't bring judgment on us, on this nation, on this world? Of course he will. It goes on, verse 4. The tongue of the suckling child cleaves to the roof uh, to the roof of his mouth for thirst. This young baby needing milk and parts, just not being able to drink. Everyone else bothered about their own affairs, concerned about their own survival. The young children ask bread. It's a simple request, isn't it? No man breaks it unto them. Well, isn't that a statement of the spiritual condition of this nation as well? Where is the teaching for children? You know, and of course we've got Ofsted trying to get involved in what he's taught in Sunday schools and in churches to children. Thinking that somehow they have some right. They have no clue as to what children should be taught from a godly perspective. And yet they feel they have a right to say. And of course they'll band about words like indoctrination and so on. Well, the indoctrination is going on from the world. That our children are being indoctrinated in these worldly systems, and these worldly ways. And it's being taken, the bread, the things they really need have been taken away from them. Just as it was again, that no man breaks it unto them. Oswald Chambers makes this statement. Is when a, when God wants to show you what human nature is like apart from Himself, He has to show it you in yourself. If the Spirit of God has given you a vision of what you are apart from the grace of God, and He only does it when His Spirit is at work, you know that there is no criminal who is half so bad in actuality as you know yourself to be in possibility. 
I love that statement because it just drives home the fact that, you know, even today we look at the world, we look at these headlines, and there's been all sorts of things recently about the children and the way that children have been uh, treated in certain situations. There was this situation with this man from Southampton that had driven around the country and he was high on drugs, ended up trying to kill his children. I'm sure you heard the story. Ended up driving at a high speed into a wall. And his children have had life-changing injuries and things like that. You know, and we, we, we're very quick to look at those things. And, and rightly so, we're repulsed by those things. You, know, you read accounts like this in, in Lamentations. That the, the young babies are not being looked after. And any normal, well-adjusted human being looks at that and makes you very uncomfortable. But as Oswald Chambers is pointing out, actually, the root of the problem here is sin. And that sin could have the same effect in any one of us. It, it really is a case of there, but by the grace of God go I. It is God's grace that helps us to stand. Without God's grace, well, I hope you've never ever had a glimpse of what you would be like without, but I'm sure that some of you have. Some of you know what you would be like without the grace of God. And it's horrible. This world is so cold and and hard and unloving and uncaring. So selfish. Well, that's each of us. That's every one of us. Only interested in our own things apart from the grace of God. And anybody in the world that tries to put on a brave face and make it seem that that's not so is deluded and deceived. Scripture is very clear. There is nothing good within us. In our flesh dwells no good thing. But the contrast when the grace of God is at work in our lives. What a difference. Verse 5. They that did feed delicately are desolate in the streets. Again, it's still speaking really of these children. They were being cared for. They were being looked after. They were feeding in a safe environment. And now desolate in the streets. They that were brought up in scarlet embraced dunghills. Those that had some sort of level of material wealth or possessions or whatever, had a nice environment growing up. They're now reduced to, as it says here, dunghills. This is what has come upon Jerusalem. This is the result of sin. This is the same effect that sin will have in any one person's life that they walk away from God. You see, this is, of course, the account of what's happened to Israel, to Jerusalem. But it's, it's far more personal than that. This is one of the reasons I wanted to study this, because this really is a mirror for each one of us to look into. It, it's a good test for us. You know, Paul says, when we share communion, we should examine ourselves. Well, I encourage you, every time you want to examine yourselves, read this book. See where you are. You know, how much of the world have we let in? How much of the, the thought patterns that the world has have we allowed to influence us? Again, those that had plenty are now in this situation and they have nothing. Verse 6, for the punishment of the iniquity of the daughter of my people is greater than the punishment of the sin of Sodom that was overthrown as in a moment and no hand stayed on her. Now, now what Jeremiah is saying to us here is that with Sodom and Gomorrah, their judgment came quickly. You know, and in some senses that was better for them than to go through this prolonged sense of, or prolonged period of, of God's wrath being poured out. 
seemingly there was no light at the end of the tunnel. This has just been going on for some time. You know, at this point, it's 19 years since the first siege of Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar in 606 BC. We're now 587 BC, some 19 years later. The first siege, we know that Daniel and his friends were taken away captive and many others. The second siege in 597 is when Ezekiel is taken away. And finally now, this, this siege, which has gone on for some period of time, some months, and finally, Jerusalem falls. And the comparison that Jeremiah gives us here is with Sodom and Gomorrah, saying, you know, you know with, with the destruction there, it was quick, it was over. Yes, it was horrible, it was God's wrath, but it was very swift. It was like pulling a plaster off quickly. Painful, but done. But he's saying with Jerusalem, this is going on and on and on. Jameson, Fawcett and Brown, in their commentary, you say this, no prophets have been sent to Sodom as they had been to Judea. Therefore, the punishment of the latter was heavier than the former. Adam Clark makes this comment. He says, he thinks that the punishment of Jerusalem is far greater than that of Sodom. And that was destroyed in a moment while all her inhabitants were in health and strength. Jerusalem fell by the most lingering calamities. Her men partly destroyed by the sword, partly by famine. Instead of no hand stayed on her, one commentator translates it that nor were hands weakened in her. Perhaps the meaning is that Sodom was destroyed in a moment without any human labor. It was a judgment of God himself. Whereas here, God is actually using the Babylonians to bring this judgment do you remember when David was called or tempted to number the children of Israel? And eventually Nathan comes to him and says, Look, God's going to bring judgment upon you for this. It was just an act of pride. But you're going to give an option as to how God is going to bring that judgment. David makes it very clear I don't want to fall into the hands of our enemies because of the way they'll treat us. Let us fall into God's hands. Let God bring the, the wrath and the judgment. And so that plague comes upon them and many die as a result. But David recognizing that he doesn't want to fall into the hands of the enemies. Well, God here using Israel's enemies to bring this judgment. That's why this comparison is so apt. Verse 7. Her Nazarites were purer than snow. Now, the Nazarites, you read about this, of course, in Leviticus. These were these individuals that had taken this vow to be separated to God. Now, for some of them, it was for a period of time. And typically during that period of time, they wouldn't shave and there was a various number of other things. They wouldn't touch any drink of any type, any strong drink or a bunch of other things. Now, others, it was a lifelong thing. So Samson, for example, God had called him to that lifestyle, to vow to be separated to God for his life. And he's saying that her Nazarites were purer than snow. That's how it was. What a testimony it was to have Nazarites walking around the city. People that had committed themselves to the Lord, that were dedicated to him. People would see them walk past. They'd be very obvious from their attire and from their hair and everything else. But you know what it's like when you, you meet somebody that's holy. When you meet somebody that loves God and you know they love God. It doesn't matter how much you love God or how long you've been a Christian, you still Check everything you're saying. You still think about everything. You, know, you, you don't want to be called out on something. It's almost like the spiritual spotlight is shining on you when you're put next to somebody that you know has that love for the Lord. 
It's a good thing. We're then told that these Nazarites that were pure in the snow were told they were whiter than milk. They were more ruddy in body than rubies. Their polishing was of sapphire. There was a glow about these people. The kind of glow that we see with Moses when he comes down from the mount, having spent that time with God. But he says, now their visage is blacker than a coal. They're not even known in the streets. You, you, You couldn't point one out if you wanted to now. Their skin cleaves to their bones. It is withered. It is become like a stick. Now, I looked at this word that we have translated blacker here. It's not necessarily, it's not a reference to skin color. It's talking about the, their visage, their, their appearance. You know, when we talk about people even in our vernacular, you know, they've got a face like thunder sometimes. We use that kind of language. That's the idea. That these people who once were walking around Jerusalem shining with the glory and the light of the Lord about them, now, just this blackness that is upon them. And again, they're not known in the streets. Their light has gone out. It's been extinguished. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes it really clear there. He says to us, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 onwards, it says there, Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what we've called to be. We've been called to be these lights. These Nazarites were, in a sense, a a forerunner of what every Christian should be. Someone who is dedicated to the Lord, has made a vow, given themselves entirely to the Lord. But when that light goes out, it doesn't just affect them as individuals. The whole nation, the whole town, the whole city was affected because of this. Verse 9, they that be slain with the sword are better than they that be slain with hunger. Because, of course, it's over with, it's done quickly, is what Jeremiah is saying. For these pine away, stricken through for want of the fruits of the field. I mean, this is the, the, the nation that God, the Lord said when they were leaving Egypt and wandering the wilderness that they were going to go into a land that was going to be full of milk and honey. It speaks of the abundance Milk, obviously, because of the cattle that are roaming the fields, the abundance of cattle, and honey, speaking of, obviously, all the vegetation and all the flowers. There's flowers there that we bees producing the honey. This is just a land that's full of abundance. But now, Jerusalem has become like this, and that the people that are dying, that aren't slain by the sword, are just pining away for want of the fruits of the field. The hands of the pitiful woman have sodden their own children. They were their meat in the destruction of the daughter of my people. We had this expression in the previous chapter. It's hard to even imagine 
the circumstance that would lead mothers to do this kind of thing to their children. But you see, we'll see in a minute, this is the result of sin. This is what sin has done. It, it, it makes you lose all sense of right and wrong. Your moral compass just gets thrown out of the window. Look at verse 11. The Lord has accomplished his fury. He has poured out his fierce anger and has kindled a fire in Zion and has devoured the foundations thereof. You see, this is the point here. It was no good just to have a little fire on the surface, a little bit of God's wrath, just to kind of try and snap people back in line. That's not the way God deals with sin. It's just gone right down to the foundations of the city. And that's important because that's what God does with us. You see, God doesn't want to just deal with a few surface things in our life. God wants to get to the very root. And sometimes that can take years in our lives as God deals with a sin or a particular sin. And things that sometimes we don't even think are sins, that as we grow in grace, we start to become aware that there's things in our lives that are not pleasing to God. Attitudes of heart or mind or things that we do. You see, God here in Jerusalem is going right down to the foundations. Cleaning everything away. Verse 12, the kings of the earth and all the inhabitants of the world would not have believed that the adversary and the enemy should have entered into the gates of Jerusalem. I mean, Jerusalem was the city of the great king. It was a city that Messiah was going to come and rule and reign from. And now in this predicament, it was a city, of course, that Solomon had made one of the greatest wonders of the world. The Queen of Sheba, we mentioned last time, I believe, came to visit, not believing the story she'd heard. Well, the surrounding nations had all heard about these things. You know, during Solomon's reign, he sent ships to Tarshish. It was a three-year round trip. And many believe, and I, I'm along the... Uh, with those, I think that this country probably is the biblical reference to Tarshish for a number of reasons. It was a source of tin. It was a three-year round trip. It was outside of the Mediterranean, beyond the Pillars of Hercules, uh, we know from Herodotus and, and so on. So um, this country may well have been trading with Israel, even in those days. Yeah, and this was a, a, an incredibly powerful nation. And, and we're told in verse 12, that the kings of the earth, all those that knew of, of Jerusalem, who knew of Israel, are just amazed. How could anybody come into this stronghold? And yet Israel's enemies have now come in. They've entered into the gates of Jerusalem for the sins of her prophets. Notice this now. This is, this is the, the crux of it. For the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests that have shed the blood of the just in the midst of her. Now, it's not to say that the, the rest of the people were not guilty. Of course they were. All sorts of things have been going on, and we've got many different accounts of those things. But it was the prophets. It was the priests. It was those that should have been leading, should have been standing up for righteousness, should have been steering and guiding the people in God's ways. And instead, they'd moved away from God's word. They'd sought things that were convenient for them. They'd be more interested in their own reward, their own standing, their own position, than in the name of the Lord and his word. 
And we're told, verse 14, that they've wandered as blind men in the streets. They've polluted themselves with blood so that men could not touch their garments. These are the people that should have been set apart for God. And yet we're told that they're wandering as blind. These are the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the nation. Again, we could draw many comparisons to the the world in which we live in this country. How many of our so-called spiritual leaders are blind? They have no no understanding. They they have no love for God's word. They're not leading people. Instead, they've ended up polluting themselves, getting involved in things of this world. Again, just like in Jeremiah's day, they've sought popularity, they've sought an easy path. They cried unto them, Depart ye, it is unclean. Depart, depart, touch not. When they fled away and wandered, they said among the heathen, They shall no more sojourn there. The anger of the Lord has divided them. He will no more regard them. They respected not the persons of the priests. They favoured not the elders. As for us, our eyes as yet failed for our vain help. In our watching, we have watched for a nation that could not save us. He's speaking of the other nations surrounding Jerusalem, surrounding Israel, with whom they thought they might find some support, some help. We're told they hunt our steps, that we cannot go in our streets. Our end is near, our days are fulfilled, for our end is come. Our persecutors are swifter than the eagles of heaven. They pursued us upon the mountains. They laid wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the anointed of the Lord, was taken in their pits. Speaking of the traps that have been laid for them, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the heathen. You see, Israel was going to live in this place. Jerusalem was going to be the capital. And they were going to dwell amongst the heathen with God's blessing upon them. The whole thing's been turned around. And these surrounding nations now, of whom they thought they could trust some of them, are now turning against them. We're told, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of us. The cup also shall pass through unto thee. Thou shalt be drunken and shall make thyself naked. It's speaking of the, they're going to have this incredible party because of what's going on to Jerusalem, to Israel. The punishment of thine iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry thee away into captivity. He will visit thine iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will discover thy sins. Now, an interesting reference in verse 22 here. If you just turn very briefly to the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is just a very short book. But Obadiah is a book that speaks of God's judgment upon Edom for one very simple thing. And that is that when this destruction was taking place, Edom, who you remember is a brother of Israel, Esau in Israel, Esau and Jacob, Edom is the brother. Rather than lending a hand, as we read in verse 21 here of, of Lamentations, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, that dwellest in the land of us. The cup also shall pass through unto thee. In other words, they rejoiced when Israel was being destroyed. And more than just that, they put the boots in. Verse 10, I mean, the whole, it's only, it's just a very 
short one chapter book. It's just just worth a a read, just to to get the kind of flavour of this. But in verse 10 of Obadiah, it says, For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. God pronouncing judgment upon him. And just as that last verse says, O daughter of Edom, he will discover thy sins. You see, just as with Edom here and with Babylon... Yes, God allowed and used them in bringing this judgment upon Israel, but they went beyond their remit. They were cruel, they were vindictive. And God, as a result, brought judgment upon Babylon, he brought judgment upon Edom, and so on. We've said already that these verses of chapters 1 to 4 are all written as an acrostic. So chapters 1, 2, and 4 are 22 verses, each verse begins with the next letter in the alphabet. So it starts with A, effectively in Hebrew, and Aleph, a Bet, a Gimel, and so on, through the, through the Hebrew alphabet. Chapter 3 is that long 66-verse chapter, and each group of three verses, again, are written as an acrostic. Again, the whole point of this is it's committed to memory. This is horrible to read, but it's one of those things that you need to be continually reminded of sin. That's why in Deuteronomy 28 we have 14 verses of blessing and the rest of this very long chapter is all about the curses. We need to continually have before our mind the punishment, the reality, the the problem of allowing sin a foothold. But chapter 5 is not like that. Chapter 5 is not written as an acrostic in the Hebrew. Chapter 5 is a prayer. Just read through it. It's, it's, again, just very heartfelt, as all of this is. Remember, Jeremiah starts. It's kind of, in the Hebrew, it's remember and keep remembering. It's not just a once-only thing. It's a, Lord, please continually remember, O oh Lord, what is come upon us. Consider and behold our reproach. Our inheritance is turned to strangers, our houses to aliens. We are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. Again, it's good when we pray, that we pray biblically. What do I mean by that? Well, very often people pray out of just whatever ideas and thoughts and emotions and feelings they have in their hearts and minds at the time. And of course, God still hears. God will still listen to those things. But powerful prayers are prayers that are rooted in Scripture. We see Daniel as a great example of that. When Daniel prays in chapter 9 of Daniel... He's effectively quoting the prayer of Solomon about if we've turned from you, if we've worshipped other gods, if we've been cast out to other lands. But if we turn to you and pray and we turn towards the temple and pray, please hear us. Daniel's prayer is all based upon scripture. David himself, when he prays, when you read through Psalms, he's speaking of the things that God has already said. He's appealing to God's character and God's nature as revealed in his word. I'll give you an example of the flip side of this. Some, many years ago, I may have shared this before, but I was at a spring harvest event, and they told us to get into small groups and let's pray for world peace. I sat there with a, my friend who I'd gone to this event with, and we just looked at each other, and we went, really? And look, we would love world peace, but that's not going to happen until the millennium, until Jesus returns. When the Prince of Peace is ruling from Jerusalem, then there will be peace. And Isaiah speaks about how wonderful it will be. But it's foolish now to pray for world peace. Of course, there's lots of prayers we can be praying. We can pray that God will 
certainly strengthen and be with the believers in each of those situations and a number of, of prayers we can pray. We can pray that these things are get any worse than they are. But there's, we need to keep Scripture as our guide. We can't just pray what we like. You know, if you look at the Lord's Prayer, as often we refer to it, it's the disciples' prayer, really. So the Lord's Prayer we find it in John um, chapter 14 and onwards. That's when the Lord is praying. He's praying for his disciples and so on. But that prayer we have, that Jesus gives us to pray, that is the model for prayer. And we see it so many times in Scripture, the same model is used. Jesus wasn't just giving us something to repeat. Of course, the whole idea is that we don't get involved in very vain repetition. And of course, most people end up vainly repeating the Lord's Prayer. But you need to think through the content and what Jesus was actually saying. And if you actually look at what Jesus prays in John's Gospel, where's John, as, John, as Jesus is praying and John records what was said, that last evening Jesus spends with his disciples, Jesus' structure to that prayer is based on the Lord's Prayer. He starts by praying to his Father, hallowing God's name, praying that God's will is done. Then he starts praying for the disciples to give them their daily bread, to lead them out of temptation. You know, that structure is there for a good reason because it gets our focus first and foremost onto God first and not onto ourselves. But coming back to the point, the reason I'm saying all of that because here, Jeremiah, using very powerful language, you may not see it, but God sees it immediately because he says, we are orphans and fatherless. Our mothers are as widows. And in the law, God speaks very clearly about the way that orphans and the fatherless and the widows should be cared for. Jeremiah is saying, Lord, we are now as such. And, and we recognize God's heart towards those. Of course, James even highlights that in the New Testament. Talk about true religion. Carries on in this prayer. We have drunken our water for money. Our wood is sold unto us. In other words, people were selling them water. I mean, in this crisis situation, where there wasn't enough to go around, people saw this as a money-making exercise. I mean, we've had a number of catastrophes in the world recently, but I was listening to one commentary, and it was talking about after the floods uh, in America, uh, in uh, Texas and so on, and after the, the various hurricanes they've had this year, or last year as it was. You know, that, that people were suddenly turning up and selling bottles of water for extremely extravagant prices. And people were buying it because they had no option. They needed fresh water. I, just w what was going on here happens today. Man hasn't changed. We've drunk our water for money. People have charged us just to drink water. And our wood, the things that we need to be able to cook with to, to make fire. People are selling that to us. Our necks are under persecution. We labor and have no rest. We have given the hand to the Egyptians and to the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. We try to work with them. We try to have an alliance with them. That they would give us bread to eat. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Now we talked about this interestingly enough in our Bible study last time about the, the fathers or, or the children bearing the sins of the fathers. 
But of course, in the context here, it, it is exactly that, that case, that they are bearing the sins of the fathers, but not because of any hereditary curse that was passed out, but it's simply they walked in the same ways that their fathers had walked in. They committed the same sins. That's why this judgment has come upon them. He says, our fathers have sinned, and are not. We've borne their iniquities. We've carried on doing the same thing. Servants have ruled over us. There is none that does deliver us out of their hand. We get our bread with the peril of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Our skin was like, or it was black like an oven because of the terrible famine. They ravished the women in Zion and the maids in the cities of Jerusalem. This is speaking of what the Babylonians did when they came in. War zones are, are, are just like this today. ISIS were renowned for this kind of behavior, raping women and so on. Verse 12 carries on. Princes are hanged up by their hands. The faces of the elders were not honored. They took the young men to grind and the children fell under the wood. They made them work hard. They made slaves of them. The elders have ceased from the gate. The gate was a place of council, a place where the elders would meet and discuss politics effectively what was going on in the city and the elders have ceased from the gate the young men from their music the joy of our heart is ceased and our dance is turned into mourning the crown has fallen from our head woe unto us that we have sinned finally we get there acknowledgement that all of this has been brought about because of their sin you know, sometimes God has to take us through all sorts of things in our lives until we realize the root of the problems in our lives. And the root of those problems is just very simple. It's sin. If we seek God with our whole heart, if we go to him, if we pray, if we read his word, if we set our mind on the things of God, if we sow to the Spirit, of the Spirit will reap everlasting life. But if we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption. And that will play out in all sorts of different ways in our lives. And people may think they're getting away with it. Maybe even us at times. Maybe we think we've got away with something, an attitude, a feeling, or emotion, or an action, or whatever it is. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, that covers the whole lot. But you're not getting away with it. And we get finally to this, this last chapter. After all this tragedy and this disacknowledgement, woe unto us that we have sinned. For this is our for this our heart is faint, and for these things our eyes are dim because of the mountain of Zion, which is desolate. The foxes walk upon it. Thou, O Lord, remainest forever. Thy throne from generation to generation. There's the statement that God is just. In doing everything that God has done here, God is just. God, God's throne has stayed. The throne in Jerusalem is destroyed. But that was just earthly at this point. But God's throne is not on the earth. God's throne is in heaven. That's where he reigns. God is outside of our realm of things. Jeremiah, lifting up his head, but thou, O Lord, remainest forever. They're thrown from generation to generation. Because there's other generations that will come. There'll be a generation that will come back from captivity that will re-establish worship in Jerusalem. 
they will go through challenges as well. But another temple will be built. It will be a temple that the Messiah himself will end up teaching from. And eventually another generation is coming that will see the King of Kings ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. You see, God is faithful. He remains. His throne from generation to generation. Wherefore dost thou forget us forever and forsake us for so long time? And of course, that's Jeremiah in the moment. Just reaching out. It feels like you've forgotten us and you just abandoned us, Lord. And then this verse of hope in verse 21. Turn thou unto us, sorry, turn thou us unto thee, O Lord, and we shall be turned. It's, it's crying out to God. But you see, once we've come to that place of acknowledging that the problems are because of sin, once we come humbly before God, we recognize that if we are to walk by his grace, it is by his grace. It's not through any effort or work on our part. Jeremiah says, turn thou us unto thee. It's to turn thou, Lord, it's you. Only you can do this work. Only God can do that work in each one of us. We can't manufacture it. But I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you won't get to that place until you come to that place of repentance first. I might be wrong, and there may be another way that you can go about it, but my experience, everything I read in God's Word tells me that you will not come to that place of walking by grace until you come repentantly before the throne of grace and you confess your sin. As Jeremiah is doing here effectively on behalf of the nation. But God can turn us. And he says, and we shall be turned and renew our days as of old. God can restore the years that have been eaten up. And then verse 22, it's kind of not where you want to end. You want to end on verse 21. But it goes back and says, but thou hast utterly rejected us. Thou art very wroth against us. That little reminder just at the end. Don't get complacent. When the Jews read this, typically they'll go back and they'll read this. They'll read verse 21, verse 22. And then they go back and read verse 21 again because they want to end on that one. I think it's interesting. That's a good place to end. Let's look at verse 21 and one more time and we'll close. Turn thou us. Lord, it's you that can do this work. The Lord can do this work in us as individuals, as a fellowship. He can turn that captivity. He can turn those things that once we've struggled with, those things of the flesh, the things of this world, attitudes, emotions, bitternesses, hurts, all those kind of things that have been part of our journey, those twisting turns of life. We were singing earlier about the Lord leading us all the way. And the Lord has led us through those things. We come to this place now of realizing that it is all about his grace. Turn thou us unto thee. Don't turn me anywhere else, Lord. There's nowhere else I want to go. There's no other solution to the problem. Only you have the words of eternal life. Turn thou us unto thee, O Lord. Notice it's in capitals, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the tetragrammaton Hebrew. It's the unpronounceable name of God. 
the I am that I am. Lord, turn us unto you. You're the I am. It's, it's exclusive. Everything else is put aside. Even just the mention of that name, everything else has to go. And Lord, if you turn us unto you, we shall be turned. Renew our days as of old. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we just thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you, Lord, for this great lesson in this book of Lamentations that reminds us, Lord, of the effects of sin. Lord, often we think, or maybe we would like to think, that we can get away with little indiscretions here and there, that they won't affect us, they won't really cause a problem, that nobody else sees them. But Lord, this book reminds us, as we see these horrible things actually played out, that Lord, you require account of that which is past, as your word says. Lord, nothing is forgotten, nothing is ignored, until it comes to the cross, when by the blood of Jesus, our sin is washed away. Oh, and Lord, we thank you that on the cross, Jesus cried out to Telestai, paid in full, that the handwriting of ordinances, all those things listed against us, was wiped clean, stamped, paid in full by the blood of Christ. And that now, Lord, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, let us live this life looking unto you, the author, the finisher of our faith. Lord, let us live by grace, walking by grace. Walking in the way, Lord, walking in tune, in step with your spirit. Oh, Lord, help us to do this. We can't accomplish this without your grace. Lord, turn us to you, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. May God richly bless you through this coming week.